right? Isn't that beautiful? He said, will you teach us to pray as John's disciples have been taught by John how to pray? And he sat down and said, hey, yeah, let me, teach, let me give you a model. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer, not just so we'll go recite it for reciting's sake, but as a model, literally, to break down and teach us how to pray. And so Scott did that. And the idea is that it's not just so that you, because we don't want to, listen, our goal is not to have a church who reads our Bible and prays. Our goal is to have a, uh, have a church of people who know how to relate to God. That's just the means of doing it, right? And so that's the point. This, the scripture and reading the word, this, this is God's living word. It's active for teaching and training and raising us up, okay? So I encourage you, if you've not listened to those, to go do that this week, right, and engage. Well, I say take one, focus on it all week, and do it and practice it and learn it and get good at it, okay? And so with that, I was encouraged as we left because we knew that Venture was in good hands. If you were here back several years ago and I went to India, we had a massive flood. How many of you were here for the flood, right? The great flood of whatever year that was, right? This the sprinkler. If you don't here, the sprinkler head bust back in the back, and we had water like this deep. Flowing all the way throughout vintage, right? And I'm in India, Randall's in Florida, we're both freaking out, right? And vintage came together, right? It was great. But it's so neat just to know we have a staff and we have people who are engaged and invested. And so with that, Thank you for letting us go. We felt blessed to, to, to be there. We felt blessed to be away from you all, right? And uh, we feel even more blessed to be back and seriously hanging out with you guys and, uh, and doing life again. So one of the things that if you've ever been to to Europe that's really, really cool is that literally, and, and I don't care what country it is, every single town that you go into, the center of their town, and, and most of the time, one of the highest, on the highest point of town is a beautiful church, right? Dates back to the, that, that generation of, of people who said the church is the, is the central focus of our community, right? That it was, it was like everything kind of flowed in and out of the church. It was the center of the, of the community culture even, right? Everything flowed and it was like, and it was set in this high point, the high steeple. Why? So that everyone, no matter what was going on, could just look and be encouraged knowing that, that Jesus was present, right? And the church was there to, to ultimately, in a perfect case scenario, the church was there to minister and to be a shepherd over us. And so literally, we're talking like we were, we were driving in France and we Decided, hey, let's just get off. Let's just get off the exit. Have you ever done it before? Let's like get off the exit and just see where this road takes us because we could do that, right? And so we got off. We took a left turn. We went to a small little rinky-dink town. And sure enough, man, you're going through little houses and lots of like lots of fields and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, boom, this beautiful church beautiful church and we realized there was no food there to eat right and no, no restaurants that so we, we stopped and this person actually spoke english so it was really fun and so we took this long roundabout turn and and tried to find mcdonald's never found it but we came into this beautiful other town and again literally we're coming into this massive roundabout roundabout we're driving to the roundabout we get right about here in the roundabout and there's this massive beautiful church sitting sitting on the hill. And again, every time I saw one, we went, oh my gosh, right? This is beautiful, beautiful. And so every time we went into, well, I don't care what, what country we were in, you would go and boom, there it is. The center, the center point of this, this town was always the church. But if you've ever been to Europe and you know what's going on spiritually in Europe, you know that basically Christianity has died in Europe. That there are, there are some, there's, a, there's always a holy remnant because God is always faithful to himself. 
But if you go into these towns, these churches usually, if they, these churches for the most part, a lot of times they're completely had their doors closed, right? Are in complete disrepair. So you drive up from a distance and you see them, they're beautiful, and you get close to them and there's like, there's, there, you know, no one has been there in a long time. There's grass growing outside and it's just, and it's, 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 it's depressing. And the churches that we did go into, right? We, and now listen, I've, I, I know Europe and I know these, and I know there's some great churches and some great things happening in, in some of these countries, but you know for the most part that, that Europe has been classified as post-Christian. That, that Christendom has come, Christendom has gone, and now they're in this whole new realm post-Christ. And as a culture. And so as we sat there and as we watched, we looked at these churches and the churches we did go into, we would walk in and, and the church was more a museum than it was a life-giving, spirit-filled community bringing the kingdom in that community. In fact, I think it never, it came to its head for us while we were in London. We were walking down Piccadilly Street, literally like, a, I mean, just a half block from the this uh, paparazzi waiting for the baby to be born, right? At the what, what, what's it called? The what's, where do they where, does, where do they live? Buckingham Palace. Thank you. Literally, it's like we were just right there in the park that leads to it, right? Buckingham Palace. And so we're walking down the street, Piccadilly Street, and we come up to this. We come up to this church, and again, you can. And I'm walking. I kind of look, and I can see the steeple right here. I can just see this beautiful church, right? And I'm like, oh, this is the you know, first church I've really been close to. I'm excited. And so we walk up, and sure enough, there's signs outside talking about the church and all that kind of stuff. And so I come around the corner, and I get there, and I see something, and my heart just sinks. I see a bunch of tents. As I look at the tents, inside of the tents, they're just selling trinkets. Like, literally, it's like, here's the, here's the street, here's the sidewalk, Here's the area walking up the little, the little gate, the, the, whatever it's called, the courtyard area. And there are just tents with these people in there selling crap, right? That's what it is, man. I, I couldn't even go in. They're just selling stuff. And I, I sat there and I thought to myself, how overwhelming is this? That before I can even get into worship, which should be the priority of every body of Christ, the first thing I had to do is walk through a shopping mall. Because there's something not right with this church. There's something not right with the church in general that, that we've turned it here into a museum and that for us to be able to pay for the things that we want to do to maintain our building, we're going to have to set up tent outside in the shopping center you know, come and buy stuff. I'm sitting there and, and I'm not trying to judge, literally. I'm not, I'm literally not, I'm not pulling up going, oh my gosh, there's sinners. I'm, I'm broken. I mean, literally, I've had this moment of like, Oh, something deflated inside of me because this was a snapshot to me of a of a church that that had that was well beyond its prime that maybe once upon a time had been a place of of great spiritual urgency and fervency and fire. Right. But it instead now turned into a museum that told stories about yesterday and of selling stuff to preserve a building that really has no purpose anymore for what it was ultimately intended for in the beginning. And I sat there, and I was just undone. But I began to think then about the church, the church in general. And I don't know if you know this, but if you've done any kind of study at all, it doesn't take long, you know that the church in America is in a very, very steady decline in the process of dying. 
Every single denomination across the nation is closing thousands of doors, hundreds, hundreds and thousands of doors every year put together, right? If churches that just don't have people in them. We kind of live in a little bit of a bubble here in the southeast. We call it the Bible Belt, right? The churches, but even in the Bible Belt, you know, the church in every denomination is slowly on the decline in a percentage-wise. Every church is in a decline. And every church that you is, is in this process, every denomination is in this process of trying to, to, to save itself many times at the cost of the expression of the kingdom of God's spirit moving and producing life and those who never heard the gospel coming to Christ. And so as I sat here in the moment and I'm looking at this, I'm looking through the shopping mall at the church and thinking about our own situation and the own church of America and the own church that we're a part of, my, I prayed and said, I'm humbled, God. I'm humbled because this has already happened in the place of great revival. Listen, if you read the story in the history of England, I mean, just in John Wesley himself, the entire gospel went from the, from the top of Great Britain all the way to the bottom, all the way from, from Scotland to the Holy Land of Scotland, right, Graham, all the way down to the south, right, yes. And to look at it today, I want you to live in a place of sobriety because if it could happen there, it can happen here. And the place I feel like God is speaking now to us is saying, not on our watch. Be a people who not on your watch, who live in this place of urgency and of passion and of making the number one thing the number one thing. This morning I want to look at John chapter 2. It's a real familiar story, and I'm, again, I, you can see where it fits into where I, where I got it this morning. It's the story of Jesus turning over the tables, right? Jesus coming into the temple in John chapter 2 and, and, and having this emotional response to what he sees. Have your Bibles turn there, John chapter 2. We're going to start in uh, verse 13. We'll start in verse 12 just for the sake of it. So after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. All right? They're in Capernaum. Here we go, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's just keep on going off your Bible so you can read with me. Then the Jews demanded of him. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that God, excuse me, that Jesus had spoken. All right. So in this moment, right, Jesus, he walks into the temple and he sees them selling stuff. And I want you to recognize that the, the sale of cattle and doves and the privilege of exchanging money, they were permitted in the temple court. 
as a convenience for pilgrims who were coming to make sacrifices here in the temple, right? This was permitted, right? This was, this was allowed. This wasn't sin in and of itself. They were allowed. Listen, it's one of those deals. If you're coming from a far distance and you've got to make sacrifices, the last thing you want to do is have to pull some stupid sheep all the way from like three hours away in some long walk, right? It'd be so much easier just to have that money you set aside with your family throughout the year. You can walk in and they're there to bless you by offering this thing, this, 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 this ability to sacrifice without having to drag it all the way down. I mean, could you imagine? It's like when you've got a bird and it's pooping everywhere. I mean, that's no fun, right? So, no, this is a blessing. This is a gift. We're going to open up the door for you all to be able to come and provide these sacrifices for you. This is a life-giving and a good thing. But something had happened. And in verse 15 and 16, it says that Jesus very, very simply takes offense Right? Jesus takes offense in verse 15 and 16. He makes a whip. He drives them out. He took all the coins on the table. He poured them all over the ground, right, by turning the tables over. Jesus is upset and Jesus is angry. Right? This is a righteous anger, right? Something is not right. Something is wrong, and he's angry about it. How many of you ever experienced a righteous anger? Someone has done you, done your family, done your, your child wrong, and something rises up inside of you, and it's an okay anger, right? You don't murder somebody. But it's, a, it's a righteous anger. All the atrocities going on in the world today and the, the sex trade and those children caught in slavery, how many of you have anger rise up inside of you, and that's a righteous, God-given, holy anger, and Jesus steps into the temple and it happens. There's an anger that wells up inside of him. He takes offense. He's upset and he's angry. In verse 17, right? Jesus' passionate anger is birthed, listen, out of his inward passion for the Father and for his zeal for guarding his Father's desires. Jesus' anger was birthed out of an inward passion, father first, an inward passion and love for his father. He had a zeal for guarding his father's desires, that what was most important to his father was most important to him. To the point that it caused this anger to rise up inside of him when his father's will was not being done and not being accomplished, right? The, the, uh, it was the idea of stuff being sold, not wrong, but right? But it had become polluted. It had become polluted, right? The selling of goods had moved from a healthy and beneficial way of aiding the pilgrim coming from a long distance to a way of simply making a profit. Under the chief priest, right, this benefit had become merely a means of making money, and it had debased, right? It polluted the temple, and made it more into a commercial venture. So what I want you to recognize is this whole thing that had been intended for something good, right? Something that was beneficial, that was pure, it had become polluted. So not only was the house of God being polluted, but the people of God were being taken advantage of. It was not about helping them. It was about taking money from them and making a profit off of this. When the moment what we see is Jesus says righteous anger, his frustration, his angst, his tension in the moment was both for his love for Father and, both for, and, and his love for us. And the disciples had this beautiful response in verse 17 his disciples remembered that it was written 
This is in Psalm 69. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It was written. They remembered. They sat there and watched Jesus. Listen, could you imagine if you and I walked into to Target and I started turning, I got to get really angry and sort of throwing everything on the ground and taking cash registers and throwing them to the ground, right? And just running through screaming, saying, you polluted the house of God. And you're like, it's not the house of God. Every place is the house of God. Are you kidding me? Yes, I have. This, you know, you'd be like, oh, what's gotten into Steve? He's weird, right? This whole thing would go down. Listen, this is the bewilderment of the moment for the disciples, I mean, they've walked into the temple before with Jesus. For 30 years, Jesus has walked into the temple. This is his first, like, overthrowing experience. Right? This is, like, bewildering for them. This is probably, like, have you ever, have you ever, listen, I remember forget growing up when my mom or dad would, like, have one of these moments and I would see something come out of them that I'd never seen before, like spitting anger like my mom, like all five foot three of her, like looking like she's six foot five with smoke coming out of her ears, right, and her face blood red, and she's, like, ready to attack somebody. That ain't my mama. I was like, where'd she go, you know? And this is what's happened. The disciples are walking in with Jesus bewildered because this is not like him, but something's happened. And as they watched, as they talked about it, they remembered Psalm 69. Zeal for his father's house will consume him. The word zeal, not one of the words we use all the time in our culture now, right? But zeal, it speaks volumes about Jesus' response. And it lets us into, lets us kind of dive into the driving force of everything behind his life. Zeal is defined as this, an eagerness. It's up here on the screen. Zeal is defined as eagerness, as enthusiastic devotion, as single-minded devotion, and fervency. We all kind of think in just in, uh, just, just in, uh, in, in, we understand the idea, just in and of itself, we understand this idea of zeal. This devotion, this single-minded devotion, this enthusiastic devotion, and eagerness, this fervency. Nothing else gets in the way of it, right? So in this story, Jesus' enthusiastic and single-minded devotion, it led him to stand up for his father's interest and to clear out his house so that it could be pure again. See, Jesus is really, really, really invested into keeping the father's house pure and clean and holy. We see We look at, in the Old Testament, some of the same language of zeal. We see it in the book of Isaiah several different times. I'll just kind of read two of these. Isaiah 26, verse 11 is up here on the screen. says, Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. He's speaking to those who are opposing the people of God. Literally, if you go back and read the entire chapter, there are those who are opposing the people of God, coming against the people of God, fighting against the people of God, and God's trying to show them mercy. He's trying to speak to them. He's trying to woo them to himself. He's raising his hand saying, hey, look at me over here, right? Kind of one of those things. He's raising his hand in, in, in judgment saying, I'm, I'm holding my hand here. Don't make my hand come down. Turn from your sin. Turn from wounding my people. So it says, he says there, Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. 
Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let them see your single-minded devotion, your passion, your fervency for your people, and in seeing that, they be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Listen, let me just point, let me just press pause real quick and speak to our culture. Never buy into the cultural understanding, oh, that God is love, and God loves all people. And because God loves all people, they can do whatever the hell they want to do. Wrong. God stands against a culture in the pureness of his love and says you're killing yourself in the steps and decisions that you've made. You can no longer do that, and I will stand against you because I love you too much to let you stay in the hell of your sin. And so he's speaking to this generation saying, you can't do whatever you want to do. You're wounding my people. You're wounding the direction that I'm sending my people. You're hurting the body of Christ. You're hurting the people of God. And I will judge you and I will consume you with my wrath and with my anger. If you don't like that part of God and you don't like that part of him, like to turn away from it, then you're missing the full, complete picture of who he is. And so in Isaiah 42, verse 13, he goes on, The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemy. God loves war. He loves to fight against things that he's opposed to and that are wounding his people and are killing him. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this whole thing as pacifism or anything like that. I'm saying literally God raises himself up like a champion, like a warrior. He stirs up his single-minded devotion and he will shout against those things that he is opposed to and that are opposing him. He will break them down. He will bring them to nothing for the purpose of hopefully Saving them. Saving them from their, themselves. God will war in zeal against things and a culture and a people in a body that are opposed to him and are wounding his direction. We see in the description of God in Isaiah regarding his zeal, what we see in Jesus in John 2, they are synonymous with one another. In Isaiah, God's zeal is birthed out of love for his people. In John, Jesus' zeal is birthed out of his love for the Father and the love for God's children and God's people. In both cases, zeal for something they loved drove them to action. They felt compelled to action on behalf of the one slash ones they loved. Zeal consumed them. Zeal for God's house consumes him today. Shifting gears big time, but I'm trying to put it into a perspective we understand with zeal. How many of you know who Harvey Updike is? Anyone in this room can tell me who Harvey Updike is. I saw Dan's hand, right? If, you're a, if you like sports and you like the Southeastern Conference football, then you, by God, should know who Harvey Updike is. Harvey Updike is this zealous, crazy Alabama fan. 
Nobody likes Alabama fans except me. I have one in my house, right? But he's an Alabama fan who one day he decided, I'm so single-minded in my devotion to Alabama football, I'm going to sneak onto the campus at Auburn. I'm going to go to Toomer's Corner with the Oaks that represent this huge part of their culture and their tradition here at Auburn. After every win, after anything that happens good at Auburn, they will go down to Toomer's Corner, the central point of campus, with these beautiful, I think they're oak trees, forgive me for they are they're not, right? I'm not an Auburn fan. I don't really care about you. But this whole thing going on, right? I'm showing my devotion to Georgia here, right? It's part of the zeal thing, right? They come down to Timmer's Corner with all these, like, thousands and thousands of rolls of toilet paper, and they throw them up in the trees, and they all celebrate their victories and the great things that happen at Auburn. So Harvey Updike, this very zealous, single-minded devotion to Alabama, picks up his stuff, goes to Timmer's Corner, gets poisoned by like the gallons and he just begins to dump it all over the ground in hopes of killing these trees and he succeeded they just cut them down right before we left to go on our trip nick satan right He's the coach of Alabama. I'm kidding. It's this whole thing. Alabama. It's all about Alabama, right? So you get this whole thing. Next day, you know, this, Alabama, like, they're just passionate. Three years in prison, Harvey Updike is serving. Do you know why? Because zeal for Alabama football consumed him to the point he's willing to go and break the law and kill these beautiful trees on the Auburn campus, which for him were awful and horrendous. Why? Because it's Auburn. And he hates them because he's single-mindedly devoted. Listen, I was reading an article in Sports Illustrated about, about, about Mike uh, Slive, who is the um, commissioner, or whatever, the, the commissioner or chairman, whatever he is, or the commissioner of the SEC. And he was doing an interview for uh, Illustrated. He said, he said, when I took the job, I went to, I didn't know anything about the SEC. I didn't know anything about their culture, their football. So I, I went to a friend of mine who was in the know and said, hey, what is so different about the SEC than every other conference in the nation? He responded by saying, he said, listen, it's a 24-7, 365-day-a-year job. The rest of us can take breaks. You can't. The fans are just different than anywhere else, right? And he goes on and says, nowhere else do you see men and women getting tattoos of their mascots, team name or team logo on their bodies. Nowhere else do you see people being buried in a casket, emblazoned, right, with the logo of your team. Nowhere else do you see, do you see children who are being named after coaches or fields or after after players or after mascots. I mean, there's a whole thing. He says, there is something different, right? Listen, when I lived in Florida, I'll never forget, I was sitting in the, we would sit in our, in our meetings, right? Sitting in our meetings, and they would, and, and we would be setting up the schedule for the year. And, and of course, we're like literally like, uh, and, and very close to the University of Florida, right? And, and, and they would, they'd bring all the calendars in, and right here in front of everyone was the schedule and the time of the games for every Florida game. Because everyone there knew, you don't, it's silly, you don't plan anything if a Florida game could possibly get in the way because by God, no one's going to be here, right? Then he planted right there in the ugly orange and blue, right? Watching their football games, screaming at the top of their lungs at a television screen, right? It's like, that's what they're going to be doing. And we would plan our entire schedule around the Florida schedule every year. Now, listen, for those of you who don't 
like the SEC or really don't get into football or anything like that, you're going, that sounds crazy. But listen, I've, I've stood with 98,000 people screaming at 18-year-olds, right, at a, in, a, in a massive stadium, right, screaming to the point that I lost my voice and would have kept on doing it, praying that God would let Georgia please win this game, right, and just like, oh, just screaming and high-fiving and hugging people I've never seen before and would never see again and living in community with tears coming down my eyes. You see, that's what we talk about with zeal and passion. I think it's the most e- the easiest way to define zeal in the culture that we live in. People come to church depressed on Sunday because their team lost. I've never done that in like the, all summer, right? It's like, <clears throat> it happens. It's this single-minded devotion that Harvey Updike's the world takes zeal to a negative. But listen, it's the same word and the same passion that drove Jesus in everything that he did. Listen, my aunt and uncle, who are tech fans, like graduated from tech. I mean, it's all sorts of stuff. They have their seats are right behind the the, the team, right in basketball. They're 50 yard line, like 15 rows up. I mean, this is like they are like avid tech fans. I'll never forget one day they said, "Hey, we have something for you." We're like, "Oh, thanks." Right, this was a kid. They come over and they bring us this glass, and in and it had said varsity on it with a football player, and it was stenciled in red. They said it reminds us so much of a Georgia, and we cannot have it in our house. Right? And we don't like you either. I'm like, I'm like, fantastic, right? There's this whole passion. And Jesus has this type of zeal, this single-minded fervency and urgency that drove him for God and the house of God and the people of God. He had to be pure. He could not be unpolluted. And Jesus was driven. John 2.17, Jesus comes in. He overthrows the the tables in the temple. He is upset. He is angry. He's offended at what he sees because the temple of God has been polluted. He will not stand for it. His single-minded devotion to the house of God, his single-minded devotion to his dwelling place was to clean it out and make it once more a place of worship. See, as I stood there on the sidewalk and I looked into the house of worship and all I saw was pollution. And my heart sunk. I was not judging. I was broken. I was hurt. I wasn't there going, this pastor is terrible. This church is awful. I was like, oh, something's broken. Something hurt. Literally, something hurts inside of me. That, I, this is, that the way to get to worship is through the pollution of, of trade and just like it was in the temple of God. But the thing that humbles me today, now you all need to hear this. Scripture tells us today that you and me, that we are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. 
You belong to the Father. You are his temple, and he will not stand for pollution. He will not stand for your faith to be a part of who you are, but your faith must define everything that you do. He will not stand for your pollution, right? Which means he is consumed by zeal for our purity. He is consumed by zeal for our devotion to the Father. He is single-minded in his devotion to move in and through us, and he is looking for a people who will say, yes, Jesus, I am looking for you to come with your zeal and consume everything about me and to move in me and to move through me and to move the pollution out of the way, to be single-minded, to embrace your single-minded devotion for my life and to embrace your cleansing of me and your purifying of me at all times. And I, too, will embrace that same level of zeal and passion for you. You see, Scott, again, talked about for the last three weeks relationship with Jesus, not so that we'd have great people who had to read their Bible and pray, because we're looking for a people when they get in, they dive into Jesus and learn about him and learn him from the way we learn him from scripture and in prayer and become alive. And all of a sudden, he's not a part of what we do during the day, but the pollution is moved and all we do is see him in his fullness and we're undone. We become a people of worship and a people of prayer and a people of confidence and a people who understand the fullness of God and we love him with everything inside of us. Jesus is zealous for us. As I prayed even this week, I said, Jesus, help me to embrace your zeal for me. That I would say, have your way in my life. Jesus, number one, he is zealous for you. Jesus is zealous for you. You are his temple today. He takes serious your commitment to him. His devotion to you drives him to move in your lives, to move towards you looking, acting, and sounding like him. Jesus is not content with his house being a museum. If all you have to tell about Jesus is the moment you gave your life to Jesus, someone says, hey, tell me your testimony, tell me your story about being a Christian. If it only revolves things from like 15, 20 years ago and not today, then you become a museum, and he is not content with stories from the past. He is passionate about his house being all that it was designed to be. Second thing, and hear this. Remember, this is the wrath part of God. This is the, the, that angry part of God. Jesus is not afraid to overthrow temples, or excuse me, overthrow tables in our lives. Jesus is not afraid to come in and overthrow tables in your life. Listen, when Jesus overthrew the table, listen, this is going to be huge for some of you. It's going to go against what you believe and to process and pray through this. When Jesus overthrew the tables in the temple, it caused mass hysteria and it caused wild confusion. He was the author of that confusion. It caused mass hysteria, and it caused massive confusion. Just imagine, Jesus comes in, overthrows the money, and what do the people who do around? They go, money! And they dive to the ground and start getting it. The money changers screaming, probably obscenities, give me my money, give me my money. He's punching people, fighting people. Then he lets the animals go. How many of you know it's not a good thing in a group of people to let animals start running free? Listen, it's crazy. An animal comes by, almost tramples you. Parents are like having to get their kids like, oh, my gosh, here comes an oxen. Ah, right. And here comes a sheep. Ah, right. And this poops all in you, right? It's messy. It's dirty. It's nasty. It's gross. It's difficult. It's overwhelming. 
On top of that, you got the religious leaders over here don't like Jesus. And they're going, hey, and they're not just going, excuse me, Jesus. What gives you permission to do this, right? They're screaming, how dare you, all of them at one time, mass hysteria, right? People screaming over money on the ground, right? Jesus is sitting there, and the disciples are going, oh, my gosh, what's happening to Jesus, right? The religious leaders are screaming, how dare you, how dare you, right? How dare you in the house of God? Who gives you permission to do this? And the animals go, blah, right? And they're going through like this, and they're like, whatever, right? It's mass hysteria, mass confusion. Jesus overthrew the temple. Excuse me, Jesus overthrew the tables. He made a mess. He caused hysteria. And Jesus does that to his temple sometimes today, to his house, when it's polluted, when things are let into it that it should not be allowed, when, when, our, when its temple today lives in apathetic laziness. Just so immune to the movement of God, they have no idea who God is and what he's doing. He overthrows tables in our lives to deal with our sin, to deal with our apathy, to deal with our, our stuff. Some of you need to pray into that. Because some of us have blamed the enemy for things that God is doing. Listen, I'm not saying you're saying, so you say, and all my sickness is straight from God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are moments of your life when difficulties arise, that is Jesus in his love turning tables over in your life, and you have to sit down and pray and actually discern what it is that's, being, that's causing it in your life. Listen, everyone loves to point to the enemy when difficult things happen. And Jesus is going, nope, that was me. I saw your temple. I saw it was polluted. I was not okay with it. So I came in and turned over your tables. You're giving him credit for something that I'm doing. Stop it. Because you need to change. Listen, how do, Steve, how do I figure that out? How do I figure out if it's, the, if it's God or it's the enemy? It's real simple. You have a relationship with someone who can tell you his name is Jesus. That's why you have to learn how to read your Bible and learn how to pray. Because when, the, when, the, when, the, when, when it hits the fan... You better be able to communicate with him and know how to have a conversation with him to figure out what's causing it. Third thing, real simple. He desires zealous followers. Romans 12, 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We should never be satisfied without zeal defining our lifestyle and relationship with Jesus. Real simple. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we sit in this moment and recognize that you are a holy God who demands a holy people. You said, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. Father, we sit here this morning and recognize very clearly that you're calling us to Christ's likeness. God, you're calling us to a dissatisfaction in the parts of our lives that don't look like Jesus. That's why when, when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's saying, do what I've been doing because I'm modeling a Christ likeness in how I'm living my life. If you do what I do, then you're going to be near to him and look like Jesus. Father, I pray today that we would stand at the sidewalk of our own lives and we would look to see what stands between us and the house of worship in our own heart and what stands even at vintage as a whole, God, what stands in the way of this pure, unbridled, unhindered devotion to the living God. 
And Jesus, today, would you make us sick? Would you turn over the tables uh, in our own lives of disobedience, God, of white lies that we've grabbed hold of? Well, it's not that bad, God, that we would, we would die to the things, Lord, that literally are hindering us from being in relationship with you and saying, you are number one in my life, and I will bow down and worship you in humility every day of my life. That would cause me, Jesus, in this unbridled devotion to Romans 12, just crawl up on the altar and die every day and be a living sacrifice for you. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way in us today, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.